Hello, friends, family, and film fanatics. Welcome to another episode of The George Sanders Show. Uh, originally this week we were going to talk about the new Coen Brothers film Inside Lewin Davis, but it got pushed back in our region of the country, so we can't. <laughs> but we're going to talk about the Coens anyway with a discussion of their 1994 film The Hudsucker Proxy. We will also be discussing Frank Capra's 1933 film Lady for a Day, and the Coens will be our Persons of the Week, Screwball Comedies will be our Cinema Essentials, and we'll be listening to the lovely Elsie Carlyle throughout the show. With me as always is Sean Gilman. Hello, Sean. Sure, sure. <laughs> We're also going to talk about baseball, so I'm just warning you in advance, so get ready for that. <laughs> well, baseball would be appropriate for the screwball episode. Oh, there you go. That's a good point. Because uh, not only is screwball a kind of baseball pitch, the Seattle Mariners are run by a bunch of screwballs. Screwballs. <laughs> you know, I'd love to see a, a Coen Brothers movie about baseball. I think that'd be really good. Is there something you would not love to see a Coen Brothers movie about? That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, I, I'll, yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna, I, I, I will buy a perpetual ticket to whatever they're going to do. So, well, speaking of them, let's talk about uh, the film, The Hudsucker Proxy. Let's. I've been watching you, Norville Bonds, even though you've been trying to avoid me. You don't... Shut up! And don't think I haven't noticed how you've changed. I used to think you were a swell guy. Well, to be honest, I thought you were an imbecile. Amy, I am... Shut up. But then I figured out you were a swell guy. A little slow, maybe. But a swell guy. Well, maybe you're not so slow. But you're not so swell either. And it looks like you're an imbecile after all. Shut up! After all. You haven't talked to me for a week, and now I'm going to say my piece. Look, I've never been dumped by a feather before, and that hurts. But what really hurts is watching you outrun your soul, chasing after money and ease and the respect of a bull that wouldn't give you the time of day if you... if you... Worked in a watch factory. <laughs> Shut up! Exactly. Oh, no, Bill. Don't you remember how you used to feel about the hoop? You told me you were going to bring a smile to the hips of everyone in America, regardless of race, greed, or color. Finally, there'd be a thingamajig that would bring everyone together. Even if I kept them apart, spatially. You know, for kids, your words, Norma, not mine. I used to love Norville Barnes. Yes, love him. When he was just a swell kid with hot ideas who was in over his head. But now your head's too big to be in over. Hey. Consider this my resignation. Immediately. After a string of critical successes, beginning with their debut film, Blood Simple, in 1984, the Coen brothers hit a bit of a snag with 1994's The Hudsucker Proxy. They had just uh, won a, a bunch of awards at the Cannes Film Festival for Barton Fink, and they decided to follow it up with a weird homage to screwball comedies. The film was a flop. It didn't, critics did not like it. It did not catch on with audiences, except for me, young 18-year-old uh, <laughs> Sean. It was the first Coen Brothers movie I ever saw, and I loved it. I thought it was great. I got totally sucked into the kind of uh, 1930s homage style, the, the fairy tale screwball elements. But uh, let's uh, start by talking about the plot. It's basically the, the head of the Hudsucker Corporation... Uh, jumps out a window and kills himself. The board, in order to depress the stock so that they can buy a controlling share in it, hires a uh, somebody who they think is an imbecile 
uh, Tim Robbins to run the company in the hopes that he'll run it into the ground, and then Paul Newman, as the uh, the evil head of the board, will will be able to take over and, and buy the controlling share in the company. And Jennifer Jason Lee plays a reporter who is onto the the scheme, but also falls in love with Tim Robbins. And everything goes haywire when Robbins turns out to be a genius who invents the hula hoop. <laughs> I wouldn't call him a genius, Sean, but... Uh, he's an idea man. He's an, <laughs> I'm glad you didn't pluralize the word idea there. Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, he's still a rube and, and kind of a moron. Uh, he's, he's, a, he's a graduate of the Muncie School of uh, Business Administration. Here's to that. Uh, yeah, The Hudsucker Proxy is a really interesting movie because... Um, what you didn't mention was it was also their most expensive movie at the time. You know, all of their movies prior to that, which, you know, weren't necessary. They were all critically lauded and, and they, Raising, they Raising their- Eric Zodan was a, a moderate success, but Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink, not so much. Right. But they were, they were still, you know, loved by critics and, and what have you. And so they were given uh, a huge amount of money for them at the time. And they decided to make this movie that you watching it now. It's clear that this movie would never have caught on with the public at large. Um, I mean, it's great that they were given the money to do it, and and I'm glad it exists. But uh, it it doesn't have like all four of their movies prior to that: Blood Simple, Miller's Crossing, Raising Arizona, and Barton Fink. Those are. In in their own weird ways, I think more marketable and and I wouldn't say necessarily easier to take, um, but I think that they're you know I think there are inroads that people can make with those ones. This one is a it, it's it's a tough movie. <laughs> it's a, it's a movie for film geeks. It's yeah. a movie for for people who say oh an homage to 30 screwball comedies. I'm gonna go see that. <laughs> and also there's like weird magical elements and uh, you know for kids. Uh, yeah. I, I'm going to come out and say that um, I actually I don't love the Hutsucker Proxy. Um, this is only the second time that I've seen it, and there's a lot that I really like about this movie, and there's a lot that doesn't work for me, which is a shame because I want to like the movie as a whole more than I do. Um, yeah, I, I don't. While you know, it was the first one that I saw, and I really liked it at the time. It's not. You know, it's not a, a, a top tier Coen Brothers for me. And that, in fact, I think looking at it in looking back on it, you know, almost 20 years after it came out, it seems more like a, a warm up for The Big Lebowski, which I think is is their best movie and shares a lot of, of similar elements. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can I can kind of see that. Well, why don't you why don't you tell me what it is that you that you dislike about the movie? OK, first and foremost, and I, I've made this plain on the show before and I don't want to harp on it. But uh, I do not like Tim Robbins as an actor. Uh, we discussed him in The Truth About Charlie, uh, and he was... I mean, that movie's just terrible, period. But he's a big reason why it, it, it doesn't work. Um, and then, as you know, um, speaking of baseball, as we'll be talking about later in the show, I watched Bull Durham for the first time about six months ago or so. And, and I was really expecting a lot, because I know how, how well-regarded that film is. And I didn't like it, and... Due in large part to Tim Robbins. That being said, I can see that he's quote unquote good at playing the naive rube, and he, which is what he does there, and he does it also in here in Hot Sucker Proxy. 
And I think Hudsucker Proxy is probably my favorite role that he's in, but I still want to punch him in the face. And I and it, and that's a hard. It, it you you can't overcome that. You know you you can't fully embrace a movie if you really <laughs> dis dislike the main the guy that plays the main character. Why why do you dislike him? I I like I think he's great. Uh, there's like an underlying smugness to Tim Robbins that I I kind of read that kind of emanates throughout, even though he's playing this, you know, kind-hearted guy. I just there's something about his persona, like the, I don't know. There's something underneath it all that I'm just not buying, and and it goes through every movie I've seen him in, from from this to uh, Steven Spielberg's War of the Worlds, <laughs> where I just. And it also might be jealousy over Susan Sarandon because I think that she yeah, could have done I think a lot that's, better. Uh, I think that's the, <laughs> the root of the the problem here. Uh, I do think that in in Tim Robbins' later work, like like War of the Worlds and, and The Truth About Charlie, he makes some some questionable decisions. But I think in this era of Tim Robbins is is pretty fantastic. Bull Durham, uh, the player, and See, the Hudsucker. That's Robinson. another one. That's a good point. That's another one that I I like so much about the player. But I don't embrace it as fully as a lot of people do, and I think it's Tim Robbins. I just—he's one of those guys that I just do not connect with. I, you know, he just what, rubs me the wrong way. One of the things I really like about his performance here is it's such a hyperverbal movie, and and Jennifer Jason Leigh is is so much about like the fast talking and the the mid Atlantic accent, and she's doing a Glenda Farrell impression, and and she's fantastic. But but what Robbins brings to it is is uh, uh, physicality. To his performance, he's he's so gawky and he's so emphasizing his kind of uh, angularity. He's six foot five and he just towers over the five foot three Jennifer Jason Lee. And you know, there's like the the Muncie fight song and the dance that he does when, and then there's like the dream ballet sequence and just his tallness and his lankiness fits in so well with the the visual scheme of the film. And I, I credit the Coens for for picking up on that and they you know they really wanted him for this role I think they fought the studios I don't remember who the studios wanted for it but yeah but he's not he was never a big star right um and so and visually as an image it works and and they give him you know uh a Cohen kind of coif you know he's he's got the kind of you know poofy hair kind of thing going on and um I just yeah I I don't find him funny and I and I don't sympathize with them, and I, I yeah. So anyway, it's just one of those things that I can't get past with this guy. That being said, let me talk about some of the things I do like. Okay. Um, there are other things that I don't like about this movie too, but we can get to that in a bit. Um, you said Jennifer Jason Lee. Mm-hmm. I love her performance. I think she's one of the greatest written characters uh, the Coen Brothers have ever done. Like I just. Everything out of her mouth is, is fantastic. What I really like about her character is that she's not just that Glenda Farrell wisecrack or you know uh, you know wisecracking career gal. Yeah, yeah. She's not just that. Like she's as when we see her later when she's away from the newsroom, uh, she calms down a little bit, and when she like kind of starts falling for Robbins, and they have that scene on the balcony and stuff. She's not just you know this. Um, tough as nails, broad. You know, she's got this underlying part to her. Right. Uh, I'm. I'm a little concerned about that. It's a. Uh, it's a little kind of uh, regressive in its depiction of the the professional woman. Oh, really? She just wants you know a fella. 
I'll, I'll give you that, but I, I still think that it's nice that she's not just um, a parody of a. Let me tell you, you know, like she sure. doesn't do that the whole movie, which could get a little tedious. Yeah. Um, every time she does it in this movie, it's great, and and you know, every time I watch a Coen Brothers movie, um, I, I I was planning on for my blog um, writing, watching a Coen Brothers movie a week in anticipation for Lewin Davis and writing about them, and I failed after two because I've been too busy with this stupid podcast. Um, <laughs> but each, you know, I've been watching Coen Brothers movies, and every time I watch one, I'm like, clearly this is their best screenplay. You know, just like the most quotable film of theirs. You know, I, I thought that when I was watching Raising Arizona. You know, I mean, there's so many great lines in that movie. But then watching this movie, it, you know, the same thing happens to me, where I'm just like, everything out of somebody's mouth in this movie is is a gem, like a polished gem. Yeah, uh, I think I think that's like a distinguishing characteristic of, of this era of the Coens, basically from like Raising Arizona through Lebowski, probably. And they kind of they get away from that in their later films, which uh, is a little disappointing. But it's also in the same way that that Jennifer Jason Lee, if if she played the whole movie at eleven, it would get kind of tedious. I like that, you know, they're kind of going on with, like, something like No Country for Old Men or A Serious Man. They're kind of going off and exploring other kind of ways of writing screenplays. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I've said it before on the show. I think they're not only, you know, the greatest writers of our time for film, but uh, almost of all time. You know, they're, they're so good at what they do. But it's nice to see them, like you said, they, they've kind of... Uh, matured a little bit in a way where they don't feel this need to like make it super stylized. That being said, I love super stylized dialogue, um, and it and it's never better than it is here um, at times. And we should also give a shout out. I think this is the only movie that they co-wrote with somebody in the room, and that's Sam Raimi. They've yeah. done screenplays. You know, uh, Intolerable Cruelty was a, a screenplay that they took on. It had been started by somebody else, and then they took it and Cohenized it. But um, as far as I know, this is the only film that they directed. Unless they... you count the adaptation of uh, No Country for Old Men. Right, but I mean, like, in having somebody else in the room with them, sure. um, which, is, which is interesting. And, you know, they go back with uh, uh, Sam Raimi a long way. Yeah, it wasn't, I think Joel, Joel Cohen was, like, an assistant director on uh, Evil Dead. Yep, and then they worked on Crime Wave together, which right. they wrote and he directed, and I still haven't H- seen... Hudsucker, of course, features uh, Bruce Campbell. And going off on this tangent about the, the Jennifer Jason Lee stuff, the stuff in the newsroom is my favorite stuff in this movie. Um, I, I love Bruce Campbell as, like, the... Smitty. <laughs> as the sexist, like, cartoonist, <laughs> like, just, I mean... You should make a TV show. Here's me pitching another another thing for you. Of just that, those characters in their newsroom, and you could make it today. I, you know, Jennifer Jason Leigh. What like she's a, up to. a contemporary TV show set in yeah. a newsroom. Yeah, yeah, but no, 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 no. <laughs> but not some Aaron Sorkin baloney. You get it, it's not contemporary. You you have, I mean, just a screwball <laughs> comedy newsroom TV show starring Jennifer Jason Leigh and Bruce Campbell. And they could do it now in their 50s. That's fine. I'd watch the hell out of that. Well, that's one of the, the problems with, with Aaron Sorkin's newsroom is is his reporters are idealistic. The thing about the, the newspaper comedies of, of the 30s is that none of those reporters are idealistic. No, they're, they're all cynical. Incredibly cynical. And the, the whole point of the movie is that for once they do something right. Right. 
and that's where like the 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 comedy and the and the dramatic tension in the movie comes from. With with the newsroom, everyone is idealistic, and the man is trying to keep them down, and that's boring. Right? Yeah. The, I mean, I haven't seen the show, but it's I, it's, it's bad. <laughs> the other thing I like about this movie is this is their first Coen Brothers' first collaboration with um, cinematographer uh, Deacon, Roger, Deacon. Roger Deakins, who you know went on to film. The large chunk of their stuff, he's he's kind of gone on into the other things now. Yeah, their their previous uh, DP Barry Sonnenfeld went on to direct the uh, the Adams Family and Men in Black, I think. Yeah, right. But uh, he he specifically left. The oh, left, le- yeah. To do the Adams Family. Yeah, that was a mistake. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but this movie just looks. I mean, Deacons comes out swinging. I think it looks really really good, um, and they put that budget to great use with the uh, set design um, and there's that opening shot in this movie that actually we talked about Tim Burton's Batman last week yeah it's it very really, reminiscent of that really reminds me of that um, and it so kind of has a little Citizen kane to it it's blue and grey instead of, of black black and brown but seeing that art deco cityscape and, and zeroing in on uh, the Hudsucker Tower or whatever is just great and, and um, Paul Newman's office with the half a clock face in it, oh, it's just great. So much of the, the the visual design of the film is is straight lines, either vertical going up. There's the the tall skyscrapers. There's Tim Robinson and Paul Newman themselves, who are very tall and 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 angular, and also straight lines into into distance. Like when he first goes into Newman's office, it's this vast space receding into the distance, and there's just this long horizontal line, but so much of the the dialogue and like the the metaphors used throughout the film are circles. Right. There's the the hula hoop. There's the clock. There's there's karma. The idea that what goes around comes around. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's this this interesting contrast between like the the visuals of the of the world and Norval Barnes as this uh, this prophet of circles. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And I wonder what you make of the circles. Is it is it a, is it like an actual metaphor for something? Like, are they trying to make a point, or is it just a, a quirky kind of motif, just something that they added on because every time somebody uses a circle reference or a wheel or something like that, you go, "Oh, circles." Yeah, this being the Coens, I'm very hesitant to ascribe any sort of meaning behind what they're doing because they are the first to dismiss any of that kind of stuff. And they kind of tend to make disparaging remarks whenever stuff like that is brought up. So, but at the same time, the Coens are really, 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 really smart. And I have a feeling that those things are there for a reason, even if they're not going to admit to it. (laughs) Um, But I hadn't really thought too much about that. Um, For me, I, I, I think it's just a... Maybe just a, a joke with them, you know. Let's just keep bringing the circles back. I mean, and the the circle, you know, Tim Robbins is is constantly showing his design for the hula hoop uh, in the most abstract way, just showing a circle and saying, you know, for kids or whatever. I've been working on this for a couple of years. Yeah, and and you know, I mean, that's just a and funny. then when the the elevator boy played by uh, Detective Presbolewski. <laughs> uh, has his idea and shows it. It's also just a circle, a circle instead of the straw. Yeah, and so yeah, I you know I think overall I think it's just a really funny joke. When I, when I was in college, my friends and I loved Miller's Crossing. We used to watch Miller's Crossing all the time, 
and Miller's Crossing has a similar thing with, with hats. And we kept trying to figure out if the hats were symbolic of something, if they, if they meant something, or if it was just a, a motif, just a, a, a thing that recurs and, you know, kind of gives like a structure to the story. And we would argue for hours mm-hmm. over, over the years, over, over what the hats meant in, in Miller's Crossing. I finally came down on the side of, of motif. Not, yeah. Not it's just a hat. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they do that. Hat is just a hat. Sometimes they, I mean, they do that throughout their career, you know, um, and in Miller's Crossing specifically, there's like a, an actual line in the film that, that, uh, that reinforces that, which is, uh, Gabriel Byrne says there's nothing more silly than a man chasing his hat. Right. Yes. Uh, and, and you look at something like the man who wasn't there is, um, you know, it's set around this barber, um, but they keep calling attention to hair throughout the movie. You know, the, uh, when they find, uh, John Polito in the bottom of the, uh, lake or whatever, his toupee is coming off and, you know, they keep showing Billy Bob Thornton looking at people's, the, you know, the upper half of their face and stuff. Right. He's a barber. But he's a barber and I'll, you know, um, and he thinks about the hair, what happens to the hair when he, you know, but I think it's just them having fun, you yeah. know, um, which is more power to him. <laughs> so like I, like I mentioned before, I, I was kind of struck this time by the, the parallels with this and the Big Lebowski, which is another, uh, very stylistically written film that is endlessly quotable. Uh, but like, uh, like Hudsucker Proxy, it opens with this, this kind of omniscient narration, like, it, like it's kind of fairy tale, except it's, uh, it's more explicitly fairy tale-like in, in Hudsucker, whereas it's, it's the stranger in The Big Lebowski. And the way that that narration kind of works is, is very similar. It's kind of setting like the time and place, and, and it's like, you know, sometimes there's a man, and, and the man in this case is, is Norval Barnes, who's not a dissimilar figure from, from the dude. He's kind of he's kind of dopey, and he kind of lucks his way into into Gets his over successes. His head and, yeah. and then uh, later into the film, there's uh, there's this dream dance sequence, which I think is the first dance sequence in in a Coen Brothers film, and, and it's very short compared to the the ones in in Lebowski, but. It's that similar kind of, of mixing of, of genres and just mashing up every every idea that they have loosely around a generic theme that I think they do much better in The Big Lebowski. Yeah, The Big Lebowski is much more successful. And I, I did note, I did write dream sequence equals Lebowski here in my notes. Um, and there are other things, too. There's a, there's a story of them, I think, was it on this movie? They... they the idea for the man who wasn't there came up because they saw a picture of a barber in like one of the scenes, and they said, "Oh, what what would the story of this barber be?" And I like to think that maybe the idea, the kernel for Big Lebowski, came from that long table in the boardroom, which looks exactly like a lane at a bowling alley. Right. I mean, it, you, the first shot of it looks exactly like you could just roll down a, a ball down that thing, and it, you know. Um, and it's designed to look like that too, because it's very narrow and it has. And the way Charles Durning runs down run. it, he is very round and ball like. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, who knows? I mean, maybe that's just a coincidence. But it does. Um, the first thing I thought of when I saw just that table was bowling. <laughs> bowling equals Lebowski, you know. Yeah. And and it's interesting too that both this and Lebowski, they share similar titles too. They have these these. I mean, Cohen titles tend to be kind of. Corky, you know, but the Hudsucker Proxy, the Big Lebowski, these are really odd titles, more so than like Miller's Crossing or, you know, uh, 
Blood Simple or something like that. Yeah. Um, and these and both of those movies were their their two biggest flops at the time. Lebowski both, went on to have this huge both, both following up their their biggest critical successes, right? With and, uh, Burton Fink and, and, Fargo. and Fargo. And it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting that the you know the critical rehabilitation and, and I mean, Big Lebowski is now one of the most beloved movies ever made. I mean, the world loves the Big Lebowski. Yeah, um, it, it made my my top ten of all time this year on our top ten of all time episode. Exactly, and and, and it. And it deserves it. I mean, it is really, really great. I don't think it's their best, um, like you do, but that's okay. We can disagree on that. Uh, I, it's really good. But this movie has not had that kind of uh, critical rehabilitation. It's a bit of a critical rehabilitation. I think it's, when it is seen, it's it's one of their least seen movies, I think. But when it is seen, I think I think people like it more than they did in 1994. I think it's easier to like it now, 20 years later, um, yeah. because it doesn't have that baggage, and now it's part of that lineage of all the stuff that they've done, um, which is also how I think stuff like like Burn After Reading um, is, has, you know, it's only been a few years since that came out, but I think that's grown in stature as it's been just added to the canon. Um, as a, some of the other films have. The problem, the biggest problem with this movie for me, besides Tim Robbins, is I I don't think it sustains its narrative the entire time. I think it's, and this is a weird thing to say for the Coens, but I, I, I think the beginning is the strongest section of this movie, the first, like, third, and it gets kind of flabby in the middle, and I get a little bored, which is... It's the first for me in a Coen Brothers. Yeah, movie. when when Robbins uh, becomes a success, like the 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 twenty minutes or so following the the uh, the hula hoop montage sequence, which is one of the best things they've ever done. Oh, it's great. Uh, we haven't mentioned that, but it's it's this uh, uh, basically silent sequence. Says the well, it's not silent. It's uh, it's set to. Something. It's set to music, and, and there is some talking, but it, it's mostly a, a, a wordless scene about the the creation of the hula hoop, and then how it goes out into the world and becomes a, a massive success. the The next, you know, kind of twenty minutes or so after that are kind of flat. Yeah, they really it, it kind of just loses its momentum there, and which the Coen's movies are are usually so well structured, and they have it planned down to the you know my most minute detail. Um, and and it's and it's odd for me to to find a gap in their films where I kind of lose my focus with it, um, and this is this is an example of that. Yeah, there's there's like the the dissolution of his relationship with Jennifer Jason Leigh, which isn't really dramatized. It's just all of a sudden he's dating Anna Nicole Smith, and, <laughs> yeah. and then there's this great scene where she comes to his office and 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 quits and like consider this my resignation, right. and and walks out, but. The, the previous scene we'd seen them together, they had their, their first kiss. So there's no kind of dramatization of, of the arc of her getting frustrated with him being a, a self-important boob. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that... that and, and I don't think the movie ever really comes back from that. I mean, it, it picks up a little bit. But I don't think it, it never reaches the height of the first thirty minutes because the first thirty minutes or or however long that is for me is is so great and there are these little things like this time when I was watching it um, there are these little visual things that crop up when he's looking at the job board outside the building and all those jobs that you know cycle through really really quickly some of them, <laughs> 
including exotic dancer, mm-hmm. third base coach, which is just... Yeah, I love third base coach. <laughs> I mean, that's just great to me. So, so coupling that kind of visual whimsy with that wonderful opening um, sequence showing the cityscape and all that stuff and, and kind of putting you in this world is really great, but then it kind of gets there and it kind of becomes stagnant. And Well, he, he ceases to be a, a really active character. He uh, he gets he gets really drunk and he's gonna kill himself and then he basically gets saved by the the ghost of Charles Durning and a uh, and the magical clock operator, but it doesn't really have anything to do with him. Right. Which is, you know, it's kind of funny, but it's dramatically uninteresting. Inert, yeah. It does have the the great scene of him in Steve Buscemi's Beatnik Bar. Which is really awesome. Yeah, the Steve Buscemi's Beatnik Bar is kind of like. Um, Martinis it, are for squares, man. <laughs> Would you call me? Um, that that scene is so great because that that shows that's the most Cohen esque scene to me because there's it doesn't really have any use in the picture, but it's like the scene when uh, Marge goes on the date in Fargo, where it's just this really great world that they they put you in. You know this sure. this juice bar. You know, <laughs> run by Steve Buscemi. Um, we, we sell juice and Italian coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I keep telling you, man, we don't serve alcohol. Um, How about a martini? Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, yeah, that part's really great, but it doesn't have... Oh, and I do love when he, when he drunkenly staggers to the Hudsucker building, he's going to go and kill himself, and then, like, the crowd sees him, and, and Presbaluski punches him. And uh, there's, like, the, the people in the crowd. Uh, he's that big shot faker. And then the woman is like, you're that Wall Street fraud guy. <laughs> and just this, you know, hyper-exaggerated mid-Atlantic accent. Oh, yeah. It's just fantastic. Oh, it's wonderful. It, I mean, the movie, like we said, is, is so quotable. Um, I think my favorite quote comes from Paul Newman, who we haven't talked about yet, um, who plays a pretty interesting role for Paul Newman. Uh, it's one of the few times he's been a, a villain. Yeah, which is really cool. And, and you know, he he does an admirable job. The problem is, and, he, and this might be my problem with the movie, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, is that I love Paul Newman in anything. And if, I, if you're asking me to side with Tim Robbins over Paul Newman <laughs> in a movie, it's not going to happen, no matter how evil Paul Newman is. And he's not, you know... There are far more evil characters in Coen Brothers movies than well, sure. Sidney Musburger, but uh, but he has such a great line in the movie when he first meets uh, Norval, and <laughs> he says with a cigar in his mouth, "Your friends called you jerk, didn't they?" <laughs> like <laughs> trying to suss out like how much of a you know moron this guy is, and I yeah, I, I think I think no, Newman is is fantastic, and it, it's one of his great uh, late career roles. Yeah, I think Newman is one of the one of one of the few actors who is as as good and compelling on screen late in his career as he was at the very beginning of his career. Like like most are either one or the other, but he sustained Newman it. was always always fantastic, always great. Yeah, he's he's a marvel, and, and it was you know thank. The, the big budget or whatever that got Paul Newman to be in this movie because it you know seeing him doing these Cohen lines is is a treat it's yeah. a real real treat with that that's our discussion of the Hudsucker proxy let's listen to some Elsie Carlisle with the song Please Mr Hemingway. Mm-hmm. 
Back to the George Sanders Show. Uh, last week we introduced a new segment, and this is a uh, part B of that. This is called "What's Sean Watching?" So, Sean, what you watching? I've been watching two things. I've been watching Hong Kong movies, and I've been watching new movies, trying to catch up with the end of the year. Uh, I'm not going to talk about Hong Kong movies because I do that all the time on my website. Uh, I want to talk about some of the the new movies I've been watching, and this week. Uh, uh, we watched a couple of movies that I know you liked a lot: uh, *The World Ends* and uh, *The World's End* and *Blanca Nieves*. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about those. I'm going to talk about the two, the two documentaries <laughs> I watched, which were uh, *Leviathan*, which I'm the last person to get on board the the hype with, but I am fully there. Second to last. I haven't seen it yet. I, you, I, I know I should. You really need to see it. It's uh, it's an amazing movie. It's uh, you can rent it at Scarecrow Video. Yeah. Which is what I did in Blu-ray. It looks it looks fantastic. It's a, a documentary. It's a, about a fishing boat, and it's a, a product of the Harvard Sensory Ethnography Lab, which is uh, quickly becoming the the dominant force in nonfiction film in the world. And uh, this is, I think, the fourth of their movies that I've seen, and it it might be the best. It it it's almost completely dialogueless. Uh, there's no music or anything. It's just it just puts you inside this fishing boat, and they because they have like these little tiny digital cameras, they they put you in places that you wouldn't normally see. Like they attach them to the nets and throw the the net into the ocean, so you're seeing like the net eye view of of the fishing boat. Or they put you in like the bin with the fish as they're getting sorted and gutted. And I would not recommend it for you actually as a, <laughs> as a vegan. If, That's actually the reason I avoided it. Yeah, if you're at all sensitive to to cruelty to fishes, it's not uh, <laughs> it's not the film for you. But the the sound is amazing because it's like it's recorded live but it's all kind of weird and and muffled and it's just it's fascinating but uh what what blew me away more most of all is is just the the colors, just the the kind of splotches of reds and yellows, and it's it's almost avant garde in in the way uh, it abstracts this fishing boat into just like primal shapes and and colors, and you don't really know what you're seeing, but it's just it's beautiful to watch. It's it's a, an amazing movie. 
Uh, and the other one is a movie I saw at the, the Film Forum just a couple of nights ago, playing at the Northwest Film Forum right now, is Frederick Wiseman's At Berkeley, which is a, a four-hour documentary about life at the University of California, Berkeley. And it's uh, it's pretty great. I, you know, it's in the, the really tiny theater at the Film Forum. It's not a comfortable place, but... I was fine for four hours. Uh, Wiseman kept me enthralled through the the whole run of it. I've heard wonderful things about about that film, um, and I actually I've been meaning to see Wiseman stuff for a long time. I remember Michael Phillips talking about um, one of his early films on film spotting a couple of years ago, and I was like, oh, I got to check this guy out. And I, I still haven't, so I, I would yeah, I actually see. haven't seen any of his early films, but oh. I've seen uh, most of his recent ones. Uh, the one about the uh, the Paris Opera Ballet, uh, La Dance, is is a film that I really liked. And then uh, a couple years ago, he did one called Boxing Gym, which is... I've heard Boxing Gym. Is, uh, I think that uh, might have... Boxing actually, Gym. maybe... That might have been the catalyst for the conversation on film spotting. And then he talked about his earlier stuff, too. Um, yeah, I, I, I do really want to see it. I really hate that small auditorium at the Northwest Film Forum, though. So I might have to wait until it's on DVD to watch it in the comfort of my own home. Yeah, the problem with, with Wiseman movies is that they... they uh, uh, I don't know if... It, Scarecrow probably has them, but it, they're hard to to get right. otherwise. Like, they don't stream. They play on, on PBS uh, fairly regularly. I think he has, like, a PBS co-funds his movies. So I think most of them end up playing on TV. But if you don't have, like, a television... Right. Yeah, <laughs> that might be a problem. Uh, but uh, yeah, at Berkeley is great. It's it's like a, a half of it is is scenes of like lectures and class discussions with the the students talking, and then half of it is like bureaucratic administrators talking about uh, how they're going to like control student protests or how they're going to cut funding because the state government has, has slashed so much of of the public education budget in California. And it's great. It's a it's great contrast between the the two, this kind of idealized vision of what the university should be like and what it can be at times versus the the kind of messiness and, and pettiness of, of how it actually gets run. Yeah, no, it sounds fascinating. And, you know, I've got a little bit of a pony in that race. Um, not that I didn't go to Cal, but um, I did live in the East Bay for a while, and I, I spent some time on the campus doing different things. And so I, I would definitely like to see that. Yeah, Berkeley was one of the, the first college campuses I ever went to yeah. in my life. I, I was there for a high school debate tournament in 1993. And I, Nerd I alert. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> fell in love with the campus. And It's a gorgeous campus. Yeah, actually, one of my friends is a professor there now, but he wasn't there when when Wiseman was making the film. So, mm. uh, Yeah, I, my band, I was in a band called Poser Posse um, in the early 2000s, and uh, we played on the radio at, at Berkeley. And right before we left to, um, to go to campus to record, um, our drummer found some mushrooms under his bed that he had for like a year and a half. And so we all took the mushrooms and uh, nothing happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's my story. That's a good story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, uh, on to some news now. Uh, we, have a, we have a couple of things this week. Um, Jonathan Rosenbaum uh, published a, a brief little cranky old man manifesto uh, on his website. Uh, would you like to set that up for us, Sean? Uh, basically, he's, he's wondering if he's just cranky and old because he doesn't like 
a lot of the uh, the new releases from this year that a lot of critics are really enthusiastic about. And then he goes kind of film by film through like a half dozen films and is like, people like this one. I don't get it. It's terrible. Right. <laughs> and I think the germ of the idea of why he wrote the piece is actually... Um, he's, he's trying to keep people in check from end of the year, like proselytizing, like, like all these movies are coming out now and people are kind of a little too quick to praise them. And that I totally subscribe to. Right. And I, and I think there is a, he has a, a, a good point here in that the, the daily grind of weekly film reviewing tends to make you want to inflate that week's release as being really important and, you you tend to forget everything that came out earlier in the year. Like we're only allowed to have a discussion about a film for a week, and it's the like the four days before it opens in New York, and then once it opens, people stop talking about it. Yeah, which he kind of betrays his argument by then going into talking about movies that were released in the first part of the year. Like he kind of he tears apart Spring Breakers, um, which came out in in spring, uh, and Blue Jasmine. Um, and yeah, but this is, this is more of like a, a year in review kind of thing for him because he's not, you know, just talking about people inflating this week's release, which is what the, the Hunger Games movie yeah. that came out two weeks ago. Two I, don't weeks even, ago. I don't even know. I don't know. No, but, but the transition in his article kind of, he's like, people are too quick to, to inflate these new movies. Here are some new movies that people have inflated. And it's like, well, people have had nine months to uh, think about. Right, but when Spring Breakers came out, it was really inflated. When Gravity came out, it was really inflated. Yeah, I know. But, uh, but I'm just saying that if he's talking about year-end stuff, which he starts, that's what the article's talking about initially. Sure. Those movies, now if, if people are talking about those movies now, which a lot of people are still talking about Spring Breakers or Blue Jasmine... It's because those movies have some merit to them. And then his arguments against certain movies, um, even ones I haven't seen, were kind of silly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like Blue Jasmine. I hear that, I, you know, I haven't seen Have you seen it? No. But I hear that it's one of Kate Blanchett's greatest performances. That enough should be, you know, that should be enough to make that movie important because Kate Blanchett's amazing and everything. And if this is her best movie, that's cool. You know, so anyway, his arguments are a little silly. Um, so he comes off kind of like the cranky old man he assumes he is. He often is a cranky old man. Like, I first picked up on, on Rosenbaum's cranky old manness uh, actually in uh, his review of The Big Lebowski 15 mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. And it basically kind of started the same way, which is maybe I just don't get this younger generation. Maybe I'm just too old, but I don't know what is going on with this movie or why people <laughs> like it. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's a, a reasonable critical perspective. Like, I don't agree with right. it, but I don't think he's being, like, disingenuous or, or you know, just kind of being a dick. Right. Like, I'm, I think he sincerely thinks this, and I, that's fine. Well, and yeah, like I said, you know, the impetus for him to write this, this piece was, I think, coming from a, a genuine place. I just think that the further you go down in the article, the crankier he gets and the less um, interesting his argument becomes. Yeah, I mean, he's he's long been one of my, my favorite critics, but I have often thought that his reasons for not liking a film are much less interesting than his reasons for liking it. Like, when he does tend to, to dismiss a film, it's often for reasons that I find extremely kooky. Yeah. <laughs> kooky's a good word. The kooky Jonathan Rosenbaum. <laughs> yeah, but 
but that's okay. I mean, mm-hmm. we all have weird reasons for liking or disliking things. Right. But, you know, the whole point of a, of a film critic is not to for you to agree or disagree with them or for him to or her to persuade you. It's for the, the critic to make you think more about the things that you're watching. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the guy's got an arsenal of ideas. Yeah. And more power to him. Uh, well, it's, speaking of um, films kind of falling by the wayside <laughs> as time goes on, uh, there was a study published this week saying that uh, over 70% of uh, silent films are now gone forever. Yeah, they. this has long been the, the theory. There have been like estimates for, for how much of uh, film pre-1930 has been lost. And uh, uh, the Library of Congress finally like went through and did a survey and came up with like an actual number. And let's see what the, the actual number here is. Uh, 14% still exist in their original format, and then about 11% only exist as foreign versions or lesser quality formats, which I think if you add those together, that's like 25% are still around, which is better than I thought. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's okay. Um, I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing we can do. <laughs> I mean, you know, there are people like Martin Scorsese that, that have really... Um, tried to to make people conscious of this, and that uh, these movies are disappearing, and that they need preservation, and that is fantastic. That's really great, and and hopefully we don't lose any more due to the efforts of these people um, like that. Um, because think of all the you know things we've missed, we've lost. You know, I mean, a lot of that stuff is garbage. Just like there's a lot of garbage released nowadays, but as just even like cultural historical artifacts. It's a shame that they're gone. Yeah. Speaking of shame, <laughs> I like my transitions today. I'm not, just plowing not, Yeah, you're, you're on fire. <laughs> um, why don't you talk about this one? Why don't you set this one up? So a, uh, a lengthy article was published last night in the Seattle Times about uh, the last five years or so in the history of the Seattle Mariners. and I'd like to preface this by saying um, if you don't live in Seattle and or you don't care about baseball, you can skip the next, like, five minutes of the show. <laughs> but let's talk about baseball. And and just how terribly they've been run over this time. How the, the current GM, Jack uh, Zarensic, kind of portrayed himself as one type of, of, of general manager candidate when he was applying for a job and when he first got the job, and then quickly reverted to another dumber type. Yeah, he, he, he literally lied. <laughs> is, the, is the argument here that the argument is that he had his second in command beef up his experience, or you know, on paper beef up his experience with um, like sabermetrics and yeah, statistical, statistical analysis, analysis um, when in fact he doesn't care one iota for that kind of stuff. Yeah, and that is horrible. <laughs> but anyway, keep talking. And it's just this kind of uh, culture of, of scapegoating that he that he and uh, the higher ups in the organization, uh, Chuck Armstrong and, and Howard Lincoln who are the, the real, you know, bosses of the team, have, have just kind of fostered where, where blame always goes down. And the, uh, the lesser figures, the, the assistant GMs, the scouts, the, the people who actually do the, the, the best work that the Mariners have done over the last decade, get blamed for the failures of the higher-ups. And eventually get get dismissed, where they get rehired by other teams who get to benefit from their 
vast skills. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that has kind of been murmured about yeah, for that, a while Yeah, none of this now. is really news. Like, we, we had heard much about this over, over the years. But this is the most concrete expose of that, and, and it's got... It's the first time that people have really gone on the record yeah. in detail about the things that, that Zarenchik and, and Armstrong and Lincoln have done. Yeah, and it um, it is really depressing news because the well, way it comes it comes a day after the Mariners made you know the best free agent signing in their history, most likely, which Robinson is the, Cano. signing uh, Robinson Cano, who's one of the very best players in baseball. Yeah. To a lengthy and expensive, but not unreasonable contract. It you know it's not. Yeah, it if what the Mariners do the rest of the off season, uh, goes towards you know adding bells and whistles to that on the roster, it's great. You know if they just kind of say okay, well we're done, now, <laughs> then they're going to have a Barry Zito on their hands. No, I'm. I'm well, you are wearing your San Francisco Giants T-shirt, <laughs> and as you well know, one one signing of a Barry Zito does not sink a franchise because the Giants signed this terrible contract that everyone knew was a terrible contract at the time, and then went on to win two World Series despite it. Right, and I would like to say this because I actually um, really like Barry Zito. Uh, <laughs> I, th- I thought Barry Zito when when push came to shove, Barry Zito. Stepped up and he kicked some major ass, and I thought Barry Zito was was it was still an expensive and ridiculous contract, but um, you're right, it uh, it worked out, and um, and uh, yeah, I think I think the Mariners were the best kind of team to take on Robinson Cano right now. Yeah. Well, there's no there's no single way to build a baseball team. You don't have to be up on statistical analysis in order to create a winner. Like the the last time the Mariners were good, they were led by by Pat Gillick, who was an old school. Uh, kind of GM as you as you will ever find. He was just really good at it. So the problem isn't so much that that Jack Zarensic isn't a stats guy. It's that he hasn't been very good at managing people or running an organization. Or he, he's just been he's been unlucky with a lot of the decisions he's made. But he's also made a lot of bad decisions. Well, it's a very to- it sounds like a very toxic environment. Yeah. And and you know you don't. We've all worked in jobs where the the manager was kind of a jerk, and it sucks, and it brings down morale of everybody. Um, and it's you know, it's the same with baseball. You know, even though these guys are getting paid millions and upon millions of dollars, you know, you're if if your boss is a total you know douchebag, <laughs> then uh, it's hard to kind of get excited about that. And um, you know, Armstrong's retiring. Yeah. Uh, in the, at the end of January. Howard Lincoln is 75 years old. Yeah. So hopefully there will be a shakeup at the top somewhere down the line and they can actually get somebody interesting and smart in there. Um, I mean, I think to me the biggest thing I took away from it is that um, Jack just lied, which is annoying. Like, well, apparently, <laughs> you know, the about the, the preparing the job application thing. Yeah. Uh, well, portraying himself as a stats guy is a lot, but the whole idea of having your like your assistant prepare the job application apparently that happens a lot in the the upper levels of corporate management. Yeah, but if you're selling yourself ex- almost exclusively on one type of management style, and then it turns out you don't subscribe to that management style, yeah. that's called a lie. 
Well, what 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 he was doing was saying that you know his his background was in scouting, and he he was he's a terrific scout, and he's rebuilt the Mariners' farm system to be one of the best in baseball from just the the terrible condition it was when he took over, and he's been really good at identifying you know amateur and young talent and bringing that into the system. And I think that's how he primarily sold himself. But he also said that he was like up on stats. Also, he didn't ever, he never sold himself as the statistical analysis candidate. But his willingness to look at that information was perhaps oversold <laughs> by him. Yeah. And then the minute you know things went wrong, like they signed Sean Figgins, and he turned out to be terrible, oh, yeah. which was a good signing at the time, and right. nobody nobody predicted him falling apart the way that he did. The stats guys became the fall guys for that. Well, and you know, and like you said, a lot of this has been just plain bad luck on the Mariners' part because they've had these prospects that have come up through the system that everybody and their mother was saying are going to be the next wave yeah, of like his, superstars. Jesus Montero, Justin Smoke, Dustin Ackley, Dustin Ackley—all these guys were going to be um, at they, least you know really. Um, important to the team and they all kind of fizzled out yeah they signed you know franklin gutierrez which is a terrific sign oh, he was a great he was a great player and then he fell victim to a gypsy curse <laughs> you know it's just it's it, it takes a lot of things to be as bad as the mariners have been for the last decade it takes incompetence and it also takes bad luck yeah and they've had they've had both in spades um which is a shame um i do hope that the cano thing does you know, turn over some sort of a new leaf here, obviously, who doesn't at this point, you know, um, I think that's going to be really great, you know, with Felix and, um, Iwakuma, and I think it's going to, I'll go to a game next year. (laughs) It's, it's December, you can have hope for the the future. There's always the Giants. Okay, well, well with Speaking that, of giants. Speaking of giants. Let's talk about uh, uh, the Cohen brothers some more. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, they are our persons of the week this week. And we were like, uh, we, we were going to talk about Lewin Davis, and you and I have seen, but I think both of you and I have seen every Cohen brothers movie except The Lady Killers, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, so we're on the same page with that. Yeah. Um, you said that your first Cohen experience was the Hudsucker Proxy. My first, I'm pretty sure the first Cohen Brothers film I ever saw was Barton Fink, which I got at the video store um, in the suburb that I grew up in. And that maybe maybe it's maybe it's the first Cohen's you know film kind of is the one that you cling to most. I mean, Barton Fink is not my favorite anymore, but. I just adored that movie, and I watched it numerous times on VHS. I, I love Barton Fink. Uh, uh, Miller's Crossing is the the other contender for me as as the favorite. Uh, that with with Lebowski. Yeah. Um, well, I made a list on Letterboxd um, earlier this year, and I the Coen Brothers movie that I champion more than anybody. Um, or than, or more than any other film is The Man Who Wasn't There, which is one of their films that, like Hudsucker, kind of fell by the wayside. Um, I saw it in the theater, because by that point I was a huge Cohen fan, um, and I'd seen everything that they put out at that point. And I saw The Man Who Wasn't There without knowing about the critical consensus or anything about it, and I absolutely loved it. And it's kind of a similar thing to The Hudsucker Proxy, where it is very much a film geeky kind of movie because it's yeah. set in this noir world. It's black and white. Um, it's, it's clearly 
it's not designed for just your average modern audience to walk in on it and just get something out of it. No, it's it's very <laughs> unclear who exactly the film is for. <laughs> it's for Michael Stransky. Yeah, uh, it's. Uh, I saw I saw it in theater. Also, I saw it at the Neptune, I believe, like right when it opened, and I haven't seen it since. And I didn't oh, really. Yeah, I didn't. Uh, it's one I, I really need to to revisit because yeah. I didn't really get it. I wasn't really on its wavelength. Much like you know the critics who dismissed Hudsucker and Lebowski for not being like Barton Fink or, or Fargo. I had the similar reaction with Man Who Wasn't There coming off of Big Lebowski, mm-hmm. which I had loved immediately. Yeah. And then was very disappointed that the man who wasn't there wasn't more of Big Lebowski. That's funny, because I saw... Because in between those, uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou came out. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and I saw that, and that was one where I saw it, and I was like, really? Actually, speaking of, we were talking about kind of uh, inertness to the Coens, uh, to Hudsucker Proxy, or, you know, it kind, of, it kind of doesn't sustain itself through the, the picture. I've never felt more like that than when I saw Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which I've only seen once. But it, it feels like the longest Cullen film to me, which kind of makes sense for the story they're telling, but... Uh, that's, that's my experience with The Man Who Wasn't There. <laughs> <laughs> well, for me, I guess, Man Who Wasn't There was the rebound film, because I came out of Oh Brother, Where Art Thou being like, yeah, it was okay, but it, it sure wasn't like a Fargo or a Martin Fink or something. And then Man Who Wasn't There came out, and I, I saw it multiple times in the theater. I forced my family to watch it. And um, I just saw it re-recently, I saw it, there's a Gandolfini retrospective at the um, SIF Cinema in Seattle, and I went and saw it there in 35mm, and oh man, it's such a good movie. <laughs> it's such a good movie. But we should talk about, let's talk about the Coens and their place in contemporary cinema, because it's a very, like their work, it's a very idiosyncratic spot. Yeah, they're, they're kind of popular. Right. They've had popular success with No Country for Old Men, with True Grit. Uh, they're kind of critically popular, and they're kind of critically hated. Yeah, it's it's. They're very divisive among yeah. among critics. There there are those like you who think they are the greatest thing ever, <laughs> and there are those like like Jonathan Rosenbaum or or Dave Kerr or uh, uh, Jay Hoberman who think they suck. Yeah, and that they're they're really condescending and they're kind of dicks to their characters and their audience. Which is baloney. Um, I'm sorry. It's just flat out baloney. Um, you know, they... The funny thing is, is that when something like Fargo came out, people thought... People that saw it outside of the Midwest, you know, they thought they were explicitly making fun of Midwesterners and, they, and the way they talk and stuff. But I was born in the Midwest, and that's just what the Midwest is like. It's not... They're not. You just don't see those characters in movies. One of the few things that ignite that unites all of the Coen Brothers films is is the their interest in American dialects and and outsized accents. Mm-hmm. And you you see it in in a Serious Man. It's in Blood Simple. It's in Hudsucker Proxy. They love the different sounds of American language. Like nobody in a Coen Brothers film talks like a newscaster, like with a flat Nebraska accent. Everyone talks funny, and and they they love that. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, because that doesn't happen anymore in in films. Everyone ta- everyone sounds the same. It, you need a Coen Brothers movie to get not just stylized dialogue, but stylized accents. Yeah, regional you know specifics. Um, yeah, absolutely. And and 
And I think that's that's maybe where when people think that I don't know. I, they think because these characters speak with these regional dialects that they're necessarily like they're dumb or they're morons or something. But look, I mean, look at Marge Gunderson. Is there a better female protagonist in a movie in the last twenty years? I mean, she's sweet. She's smart. She's 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 warm. I mean, she's just phenomenal. Right, and that's and that's like the the most often used comeback to to the complaint that the Coens are are condescending towards the characters. Like, what about Marge Gunderson? Like, and and maybe the the uh, the criticizer will say, okay, we'll grant you that one. <laughs> but then, what about all of these others? But uh, I think I think the Coens like all of their weirdos and, I, and freaks, and I don't I don't think they're they're kind of like a Olympian film directors looking down on these horrible people that they get to manipulate into into terrible situations. I think they you know they're they're right. They're maybe not. Uh, right in there with them because there's not a, a kind of uh, identification with the characters in the, in the Coen brothers style. It, it is very stylized and is very much about like the, the dynamics of plot and construction and, and dialogue. It's not, uh, they're not humane filmmakers in the way like a, a Robert Brisson or, or, you know, somebody more like that, a Jean Renoir might be, but that doesn't mean that they're, that they're cruel. No, I don't, I don't yeah. I mean, you know, if you look at the history of drama, it's 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 putting characters in unfortunate circumstances and watching that play out. And it happens time and time again throughout the history of, of storytelling. And the Coen brothers, I think, just because the Coen brothers are, I don't know, so inventive in the ways that they, you know... Um, display this sort of um, these abominations upon these people that they're cruel, but I don't think I don't think they're cruel at all. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think Hitchcock is cruel to to Roger O. Thornhill in in North by Northwest. Yeah. I think it's just we the mechanics of plot. Exactly, it's the, and and that's where the Coens are so great is the mechanics of plot. I mean, <laughs> when I, when I was uh, preparing for this show, I, w- I was gonna be the one I, I, I was working through discussing um, laying out the plot of Hudsucker Proxy, which I'm glad you did, because for me, it's like trying to describe it, you did a very well, you did a very good job because it was very succinct and stuff, but to me, the I just kept saying, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, because their movies, there's so much going on, it's just a feast, and that's what makes them so rewatchable. Um, you know, you look at something like, I'm going to say The Man Who Wasn't There Again, but it's got this, you know, Hitchcockian, you know, Santa Rosa in, in the late 40s, you know, shadow of a doubt kind of world. Um, but then they throw in these UFO things, you know, out of nowhere that just, <laughs> just so much fun. Um, and, and they're just so inventive and so great. So generally the, the Coens make two kinds of films. They make, they make, uh, comedies or they make crime films. Which, uh, subset do you prefer? Which do I prefer? Well, it's funny just because... taken as a whole. I think I would guess I would go with the crime films because... On my list on Letterboxd, which we can link to in the notes for this show, not necessarily looking at the top selections, but the ones at the bottom are almost all Intolerable comedies. Cruelty. Intolerable Cruelty is down there. Hudsucker's down there. Um, oh Brother, Where Art Thou is down there in the bottom rung. Um, and those are all the ones that I've only seen once, except for Hudsucker now. Um, 
because they, they just don't, you know, get me to go back to them. Obviously, there are exceptions. Big Lebowski is, is high on my list. Um, Raising Arizona. Raising Arizona, exactly. Um, Burn After Reading is, is in the middle. It's in the squealing masses, you know, but... I'm curious where Inside Lewin Davis is going to fall, like, because I, I haven't really heard much about it, if, it, if it's comic or, or more dramatic. I've heard that it's not as cruel as their... I think it, I think it kind of... I mean, even their dramatic movies have funny moments, and their comedies have, you know... Right, Miller's Crossing is, is a, a weird mix, because it's a, it's a gangster movie, and the gangster movies are, were contemporary with the screwball movies and had a lot of, of very similar elements. Yeah, and... It's as comic as it is a crime film. Yeah, and I, I think I've laughed at every Coen Brothers movie at some point. I mean, even the bleakest of films like Oh Brother, or, I mean, not Oh Brother, um, uh, No Country for Old Men or whatever, have these, you know, moments. It might be laughing out of uh, sheer fear and adrenaline or whatever, but, um, but yeah, what about you? Would, would you pick the comedies or the... Uh... Yeah, I'd probably pick the comedies. Just, I think... We were we were talking. We were going to talk about screwball comedies here, and we were we were trying to think of uh, if there were any modern screwball comedies. And the only examples I could think of were Coen Brothers movies. And while I think their 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 crime movies are very good, there's a lot of people that make really good crime movies, and I don't know that theirs are appreciably different in in like skill or, or tone than like Quentin Tarantino's crime movies or something like that. Mm-hmm. But nobody makes comedies like the Coen brothers anymore. So they're, that's really where they're, they're unique mm-hmm. as, as filmmakers today. Like nobody else could make the Hudsucker proxy. Well, no one yet. Yeah. Lots of people could make blood simple. Yeah. But you know, maybe it's not as good, right? <laughs> but lots of people could make a movie like that. Blood simple. I is- mean, Jenny Moe. Remade the HUD, remade Blood Simple. Jang is not going to remake the Hudsucker Proxy. Did you see a woman a gun in a noodle shop? I've heard that it is terrible. It is really bad. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so not everybody can do it. Um, but let's let's talk about screwball comedies. So it's it. our uh, cinema central. And what is your essential screwball comedy? Well, I'm going obvious because I'm Captain Obvious on the show. But um, and I've said this before, Howard Hawks made the best movie in practically every genre that you can possibly think of, and that's why he's the greatest. Um, but I am going His Girl Friday um, because I, I, it's, the, it's, the, it's the quintessential, cinema-essential, screwball comedy. It is so much fun. Um, I love Cary Grant, as you well know, and um, I don't think he's ever been better than he is in there. And he's teamed up with, I mean... Rosalind Russell in this thing is just, I mean, she she's obviously clearly the uh, the go to for uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh's character in Hudsucker Proxy, this you know fast talking dame, you know that that holds her own with the men in the newsroom kind of thing, and uh, I just I think it's just so much fun. It's it's great. It's it's one that uh, that while I love, I don't love it as much as the people who really love it. Yeah, you're a bringing up baby kind of guy. Right, and that is my essential <laughs> screwball comedy. And it's also, not coincidentally, it's the first screwball comedy I ever saw. Wow. And uh, I just started watching it in college, just flipping around and landed on TCM like halfway through and just started watching it. Uh, I knew Cary Grant. I, I think this was the first time I'd ever seen Catherine Hepburn in a film. Mm-hmm. And I just laughed through the last 45 minutes of the film. It was just the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And I have watched it again and again and again and again. 
and it's always funny. I, I love bringing up baby. <laughs> and people who don't love bringing up baby are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because everybody, it seems to me, I mean, this is a theory I'm working on here. Um, that there are bringing up baby people and there are his girl Friday people. Well, no, no, it's not like a, a Elvis Beatles thing or Rolling Stones Beatles thing. Most everybody agrees on the awesomeness of Howard Hawks. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're not Howard Hawks is not as divisive as, as like the Cohen brothers, for example. Yeah, but it seems like everybody has a um, Howard Hawks film that they just don't like, mm-hmm. and um, for me, that's Twentieth Century, which is and you're wrong about that too. <laughs> I, I've, you know, Carol Lombard. I, I've seen a couple Carol Lombard films, and she just, you know, she's not as bad as uh, Tim Bur- or Tim Robbins for me, but uh, I, I just haven't connected with it. But anyway, um, my girlfriend, my better half, uh, Lindy, cannot stand bringing up baby. <laughs> she just, it's so funny because she, the story, her family came to visit for Christmas a few years back, and I was working late at the movie theater at the time. And she, she just asked me for a suggestion of films that she could watch with her parents, um, you know, while they're just hanging out in our uh, old apartment. And I said, oh, you should, you should watch uh, Bring Up Baby, you know, the whole family will, will like it. <laughs> I, I came home and I think, I think screwball comedies aren't the best for um, German parents. Um, it doesn't really work for their sensibilities, and I came home to a very silent yes, living room. Ger- Germans are, are well noted for their <laughs> lack of humor, um, and so maybe that was the, the viewing experience wasn't the best. Um, but anyway, it was it was definitely quiet in the auditorium when I returned home that night. But uh, yeah, but but you and I both picked Howard Hawks films as our 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 best, you know, screwballs, and it totally makes sense. Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Howard Hawks is the best. Yeah. Well, uh, a contemporary but, of his. Yes, also a maker of some fine screwball comedies, including the one that kind of uh, put screwball on the map. Uh, it happened one night. Which is overrated. Uh, Frank Capra. Here's a, a clip from Lady for a Day. <laughs> I don't like the leads in that movie. That's my problem with it. Clark Gable and Clyde Colbert? Yeah. Weirdo. <laughs> Get this. I got the Babcock deal all set. Get me? It's set. Now that's our bread and butter. What's this? You're not doing yourself any good here. Yeah, I know, I know. You think I'm screwy. But I got an idea. For years, Annie's been lucky to me, ain't she? What? Well, what kind of luck would I have if I passed her up at a time like this? Miss Missouri Martin. Fetch her in. Missouri Martin? Yeah, Missouri Martin. The old gal herself. How's it, boys? Come on, gang. Well, how's my baby? Cut it out, cut it out. Well, here they are, sucker. The gang that keeps me broke but beautiful. Well, there they are, all ready for the slaughter. Now, where's the victim? Ah, there she is. And what material for a bunch of hungry artists? Look at them, look at them. Their tongues are hanging out. Say, when they get through with this, she's going to look every bit as good as me. The idea is to make her look like a lady. (laughs) Laughing boys in again. All right, come on, you flesh pounders. This is going to be a sweet job. All, All right, right, Annie, let's go. We will make you beautiful. Yeah. Come on. Add a gal. It's all right, Annie. Yeah. <laughs> that was a clip from Lady for a Day, um, a Great Depression era version of Cinderella, uh, which features 
Mae Robson plays Apple Annie, a uh, you know a poor woman who you know wanders the streets all day selling apples and and making a little bit of cash to get by on, who wants her her daughter who lives abroad to think that she's a wealthy socialite, and so she um, steals stationery from a fancy hotel and sends her letters and. Complications ensue when her daughter responds to one of those letters and says, I'm coming to visit. And Apollani is terrified by the prospect um, because she doesn't want her daughter to see that she's destitute. Um, and so a kind-hearted gangster named Dave the Dude decides to... Uh, and he does it kind of selfishly, but not really. He, you know, Apollani's always been a good luck charm for him. So he uh, is going to help her out, and he puts her up in a, a huge suite in this fancy hotel and has all of his cronies kind of help sell the idea that Apple Annie is actually a, uh, a rich socialite. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's directed by Frank Capra. It's one of his earliest, biggest hits. Uh, it was nominated for four Oscars. Um, it didn't quite reach the heights of next year's uh, It Happened One Night, which we talked about for a second before we get into this. Um, I think this is the better of the two pictures. I, am I crazy, Sean? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's, it's, it's a very good movie, but I, I happen to really like it happen one night. I, I, I think it's great. But, okay. Um, well, well, let's talk about this. Oh, no. So you hadn't seen this before, correct? I had not. It, it's actually one of the... I've seen I've seen most of the the major Capra films, and I'm really I'm I'm kind of mixed on him as as a filmmaker. There's some movies of his that I really love, like like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and uh, It's Wonderful Life, and uh, It Happened One Night. I think is pretty good. There's others of his more acclaimed films that I just can't get on board with at all. Like I've tried multiple times to to get into Mr. Deeds Goes to Town or uh, uh, Meet John Doe and no, I just, I just don't like him. And then uh, uh, a more obscure film like The Bitter Tea of General Yen, which he did uh, Same year. Also, also in 1933 with, with Barbara Stanwyck, uh, is a really good movie. It's a, a very much underseen one, but uh, is very interesting. So this one is, is kind of in the middle for me. I put it around on the same level with It Happened One Night. Like, it doesn't totally blow me away like Mr. Smith or, or the, the Jimmy Stewart ones, but it's better than You Can't Take It With You. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah, I mean, Capra for me, not in my pantheon of, of great directors. I, I mean, he's he's a great director, but he's not my like he's not a favorite director of mine. Um, I agree with you. Um, I I think um, It's a Wonderful Life is probably my favorite Capra movie, and it you know it's it, it totally deserves to be played every year at this time. Um, it's playing the Grand Illusion very soon, and I think every. City yeah, as, as a, it's played there every year for like 46 years. years. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it deserves all that. I was really taken in with this film. Um, it, you know, the, the, the criticism that Capra gets most often tends to be that he's kind of sentimental. Mm -hmm. Capricorn. Uh, he's Capricorn. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and that's, that's apparent in, you know, something like this, clearly. But, Watching this movie, I, I bought the corn, uh, you know, just hook, line, and sinker, and I think I was swept up by the whole fairy tale aspect of this picture. Yeah, I think I think it really works in in this film with with the kind of it's uh, it's based on uh, Damon Runyon, 
characters and uh, that in that kind of gangster world, which is is very stylized, much like the the Coen Brothers kinds of worlds. All of these kind of mugs getting together to enact this fairy tale, it it kind of makes sense, and it's so close to to failing that when it comes through with the happy ending at the end, you're like, oh, thank God, <laughs> because on the one hand, you know. I was a little disappointed on the on the one hand because it could have been just a hilarious comic disaster if if their scheme had been allowed to play out instead of the kind of Deus Ex Machina ending that 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 Capra goes for. On the other hand, I'm I'm so happy for Apple Annie that everything worked out in the end. Me too. Um, and in my letterbox review, uh, I talk about this is the type of movie where um, as soon as, as soon as the credits roll, you start to think, well. Clearly, the happily ever after is not going to happen with this because <laughs> the movie ends... I don't know if we should talk about the ending first, but the movie ends with everything going smoothly, like you said, and her daughter getting uh, you know, getting back on the boat and going back to Spain. And, and we see Apple Annie still dressed to the nines, waving goodbye, and she's super happy, and everybody's cheering. And then the movie ends, and, it's, and you're like, well, clearly this is... Not going to work out. I, I was always waiting for another complication to right. the plot. And and compared to a lot of other screwball comedies, like something like a, a Preston Sturgis movie would have like eight more plot twists to the to the story than than what Capra gives us here. Like I was I was expecting, you know, for the count to not really be a count. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was waiting, I was expecting that too. And actually. for that kind of class reversal to to happen, but but no, there's none of it that. It just, it just it just plays straight. But. The reason this movie works is because of all of these wonderful, wonderful characters. I mean, I just, I think everybody in this movie is, except for, and this is this is a product of being a movie from the '30s. Um, the her daughter, Apollonie's daughter, and and the, um, the count that's going to marry her. Yeah, are the, the blandest, the, the romantic <laughs> couple are like straight out of like the Marx Brothers level. Yeah you know, young, yeah. young lovers. Yeah. They're, it, it's they're like awful. a night of the opera. Or it's just, I mean, they're so bland. I mean, obviously they're, they're not given much screen time, thankfully, but everybody else, Apple, Annie, uh, she's, she's just great. Especially I think in those early scenes, may Robson, of course, uh, star of bringing up baby. Yes, that's right. She plays uh, Catherine Hepburn's aunt. That's right. Um, and, sh- and she's really great here. Um, especially, I mean, this is a comedy, but, those early scenes when we sh- when we see her so distraught about you know it's it's pretty dark like yeah. it's it's the height of the depression she's poor she's basically she's like one step above homeless yeah she's got a little and shack she's got a serious <laughs> drinking problem <laughs> yeah, she which doesn't really get explored in the film you know maybe uh you know, Capra doesn't go as dark as he could have with the the life that Apple Annie is is leading but it's the implication there is that she's led a pretty horrible life. Oh, yeah. And it actually really reminds me of uh, her character, um, and particularly the scene where she's writing the letter to her daughter. Um, that was heartbreaking. Oh, it's just devastating. And it really reminds me of Thelma Ritter in Pick Up on South Street. Because, I mean, it's it's the same kind of shotgun shack kind of place that she lives in. And... Um, that's funny that you should say that because there's actually a Thelma Ritter movie that has a plot that's very similar to this called uh, The Mating Season from 1951 with uh, with Gene Tierney directed by by Mitchell Leeson where mm-hmm. where she's the mother-in-law but she gets mistaken for the cook so she pretends to be the cook of this rich couple. 
in order to avoid uh, embarrassing her, her uh, son or daughter. I can't exactly remember. I need to... I really need to just watch every, every Thelma Ritter movie because she's one of my favorite. I mean, she's just so good. But in, yeah, yeah, she's just great. Um, but yeah, so Apple Annie in those early scenes, uh, the one where she's writing the letter and we see her drinking her gin. And I mean, she... she well, it's a full fifth that she yeah. that she pounds. <laughs> uh, what's great about that scene too? The little thing is um, the first time she takes a drink. She before she does, she turns the portrait of her daughter away from her, um, right. and then she takes a slug and then she starts writing and she turns the picture back and then she she just starts not caring, <laughs> just getting really wasted. Um, and then the scene in the hotel. There are two scenes in the hotel in the lobby where she goes in to first retrieve her letter and then she goes into. Um, ask the management to kind of go along with her ruse um, are just devastating. Um, yeah, I think I think the film kind of suffers by by her not being an active part of the plot through the last two thirds of the movie. I agree. She's with kind you of that. kind of a figure, and she's all dolled up while while Dave the dude is the one you know coordinating all of the 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 deceptions. Yeah, well, as soon as she gets um, her makeover, she just kind of disappears and and you're right it is it is a shame because she um she's so good here and um on the other hand it gives it gives a chance to highlight so many of the other great character actors in the film like uh guy kibbe as the uh the pool hustler oh. judge who who plays her husband who i think guy kibbe is in every movie of 1933 <laughs> i'm not exactly sure but uh but he is fantastic and oh. and of course glenda farrell Yes, Glenda Farrell is who, in here. Who does not get nearly enough to do, but I I, I love Glenda Farrell. Yeah, she's, she is really great. She is really only in uh, maybe three scenes in this thing, um, but she runs with it you know, as best she can. And um, yeah, she's, she's great. She's just wisecracking and um, plucky. <laughs> yeah, like in... in uh... You, you mentioned Russell and Russell from His Girl Friday as, as a model for Jennifer Jason Leigh. For me, it's more Glenda Farrell, and it's not so much apparent in this movie because she doesn't get a whole lot to do. She plays like the nightclub owner who kind of coordinates the, uh, the makeover of Apple Annie. Um, but in a movie like, uh, even something like Mystery of the Wax Museum, she plays like the girl reporter, and, and her talking and her accent is, is so fast, and it's, it's very clearly the model for me at least, of, of Jennifer Jason Lee in, in Hutsucker. Yeah, she's great here. And, and uh, I want to give a shout-out to uh, Nat Pendleton, who plays um, the thug named Shakespeare here, um, who I know best from uh, being one of the football players from the opposing college in uh, the Marx Brothers Horse Feathers. Oh. Um, he's uncredited in that, but I've seen that movie so many times. As soon as he showed up, I said, Hey, it's that guy! Um, and yeah, and naming a character Shakespeare... Especially that character is just great. Yeah, and then and uh, Ned Sparks steals the movie as uh, Happy McGuire. He his performance here is is a is a performance that at first it was kind of disconcerting because he does he his line his line readings are so flat. Yeah, um, he's got the he's got this very deep kind of monotone gravelly voice yeah and he's he's so cynical about everything every single thing and and the first couple of scenes that he's in i was like what's this guy's deal this is and but then once he keeps committing to it i was just so sold and he's he has so many great lines um and and he has so many great interactions with people um there's the um 
I love what the the butler. The, I was just about to say. Says, uh, if I had choice of weapons with you, sir, I'd choose grammar. grammar. <laughs> I did, I wrote that one down too. <laughs> it's, just... the, it's the only line that leaves Happy speechless. Yeah. <laughs> um, he, yeah, he's just great. Um, and <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I don't even know what to say about that. But yeah, he's just he's just phenomenal in this. So yeah, like like I mentioned, these these are all kind of based on uh, on. Uh, it's based on a Damon Runyon story, and these are very typical of Runyon's characters, of these kind of uh, comic strip-like gangsters who never really seem to do anything criminal, but they all have very colorful nicknames. And they all talk in this very stylized di- dialogue. And uh, there's a lot of films that are influenced by Damon Runyon, like specifically something like Guys and Dolls, which is another Runyon adaptation. Uh, but it's not the, the kind of the dominant strain of screwball comedy. In, instead, it's more the, uh, the Ben Hecht uh, kind of version who, like Runyon, was a newspaper reporter who hung around with gangsters, went to Hollywood, where he wrote like Scarface and, and a bunch of the other, a lot of the great screwball comedies written by Ben Hecht. And it's a, I think it's, it's, a, it's a different approach to screwball comedy. They're both, um, I think Hecht is more, more verbal and less kind of cartoonish. The, yeah, I, I agree with you uh, completely on that. Because, yeah, this movie... Like you said, like comparing this to like uh, like a Preston Sturgis kind of thing, which just gets crazier and crazier, um, and and I love that kind of stuff. I mean, I, I'm all I'm on board with all that stuff. Um, but yeah, this one is a little more. It's it's in kind of letting the dialogue wash over you and uh, just kind of existing in that world, um, which to me is that you know that the movies are for escapism, you know, uh, and. And particularly, you know, this coming, this is a great movie for someone to see during the Great Depression. It was, you know, it could let them forget about their troubles for a bit and just enjoy the patter of these people and seeing this just really sweet tale play out on screen. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I don't, I don't know if it's, if it's just the running adaptations of it that I've seen, but he seems much more sentimental than Hecht. Like there is no sentiment in a, in a Ben Hecht movie right. and, and any sentiment that is there was probably put in by some studio executive or something. Uh, whereas, whereas Runyon in both, in both this and in guys and dolls, uh, they're very much about like a community coming together to, to help each other out. And it's, you know, it's a community of misfits, and they're kind of wacky, but they're still a, a community, and that is is very much in fitting with with kind of Capra's more general communitarian, anti-authoritarian kind of political strain in, in his films. Absolutely. Whereas, I, I don't see Hecht's cynicism being a good match for Capra. No, 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 not whatsoever. Um, well, you talk about the community aspect. What I really do like about this is seeing. Um, it, in the, particularly in those early scenes, this kind of shadow economy that's going on, um, and you know, it, it's 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 not necessarily how it actually was back then in the '30s or whatever. But you know, it, it's interesting to see you know the way these people with no money kind of barter with each other to get what they need. You know, and Apple right. Annie's, you know, she's got this relationship with the guy that works at the hotel who who kind of squirrels away you know uh stationary for her so she can write her letters and stuff and and uh dave the dudes warren williams you know just attachment to this this woman just because of you know how she affects his life and stuff it's 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 really great to see this kind of world played out 
Yeah, it's a, it's an informal economy that gets created when the real economy crashes. It doesn't exist, right? Or yeah. And but you know, even though the the real economy has crashed, there are still extremely wealthy people oh, yeah. that are doing <laughs> just fine, while the masses of people are really poor. And there's always, even in like the most sentimental Capra film, there is always a, a very real element of, of darkness and and tragedy and and kind of horror. That's that's of what's going on in in the 1930s or you know even later with uh, with its wonderful, it's wonderful life. life yep. And I I think when the focus is on the happy endings and on the Capricorn, we can tend to to lose sight of the the kind of horrible things that he actually has depicted in his movies, and they're what what make the the corn more meaningful and more worthwhile and make it not just sappy and not just kind of you know, exploitative, manipulative, kind of melodramatic feel goodness. Oh, I, I'm totally on board with that. I, I completely agree. I mean, he really, he sh- and he sh- and he shows, and I love that he shows. You know, when I dis- when I'm about to describe it, it sounds incredibly manipulative. But like the the man with no legs who kind of helps them. You know, he he kind of spots the cops and 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 the blind beggar guy that plays the accordion and stuff. Like. It's nice to see him populating and putting these people into um, a movie. You know, just putting people like that in a movie is great, you know? And it's not like a uh, Todd Browning sort of way where it's like the freaks will prevail or kind of... (laughs) That's just like, these are regular people, you know? They're just getting by just like you and me, you know? I think that's wonderful. Yeah. It's a good movie. (laughs) (laughs) This movie was nominated for four Oscars. Uh, it did not win uh, any of them, but it was, you know, the major um, stuff. Best Picture, uh, Robson was nominated for Actress in Leading Role. Um, Capra was Director and uh, Best Adaptation. And, uh, of course, the next year... It Capra happened one night. One. What just, you know... It won... Return uh, of the King did. <laughs> it did better than it won. Uh, it was the first one to win like the five major awards and won picture, director, actor, actress, and screenplay. Yeah, and uh, only uh, three other movies have done that, or two other movies have done that. And what movies were those? You want to guess? I have no idea. <laughs> one of the Cuckoo's Nest and Silence of the Lambs. Oh, yeah, I never would have gotten that in a million years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I can't uh, recommend this movie enough. Go watch it if you haven't seen it. With that, that's our discussion of Lady for a Day. Here's some more Elsie Carlisle with a song from another movie that's set during the Depression, Pennies from Heaven. This is uh, The Clouds Will Soon Roll By. Top high to you and me, he 
Okay, thanks, Elsie. It's been a treat. Uh, next week on the show, we're going to be looking back at nineteen at. 2013 in film, but not the films that came out in 2013, but rather the ones that we saw in this last year that come from earlier years. Specifically, we'll be taking a look at uh, one of the movies I watched this year, uh, Neville Dean and Taylor's Crank, starring Jason Statham, and we'll also be watching uh, Sammo Hung in The Victim, aka Lightning Kung Fu, which is one of the the movies that Mike watched this year. And uh, rather than talking about news or person of the week or whatever we're just going to count down our top five new to us movies from 2013 yep that's gonna be cool uh you can find us online at the george sanders show.blogspot.com we're on twitter at geo sanders show and uh you can email us at the george sanders show at gmail.com uh yeah, if- we just got our very first email this week it was very <laughs> exciting thanks 20 thanks. 23 weeks <laughs> Thanks to Brian for uh, for sending us a note. Yeah, that was that was very nice. Uh, if you are in Chicago this week, uh, the Siskel Film Center uh, will be showing um, two films of uh, directors and stars that we've talked about in recent weeks. Um, on the 14th at 3 p.m., they will be showing Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. And right after that, at 4.30 p.m., Charlie Chaplin's City Lights, uh, which arguably the best films either of those titans ever made so go check them out uh if you're in new york you need to head over to the uh lincoln center the film society there has just started a massive retrospective of george cukor films and i'm gonna point out that a a week from today as we're recording this on sunday december 15th they're playing sylvia scarlet with Catherine hepburn and Cary grant which is surely one of the strangest films ever to come out of the the classical studio era it's uh it's a must-see it's it doesn't all work, but it's fascinating. <laughs> I'm always intrigued by those kinds of films. Yeah, and and all through December and January, they're doing. I think they're doing every George Cukor film. So check them out. Check them out. And that's our show for this week. Here's George. <laughs> Just a kiss, a sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. And when two lovers woo, they still say I love you. On that you can rely. No matter what the future brings As time goes by Moonlight and love songs Never out of date Hearts full of passion Jealousy and hate Woman needs man and man must have his mate that no one can deny. It's still the same old story, a fight for love and glory, 
a case of do or die. The world will always welcome lovers as time goes by. When he's on the balcony with the Jennifer Jason Lee, and he's describing her as a gazelle, and he's like, or perhaps an antelope or an ibex. <laughs> yeah, and she repeats the same line. I, lo- I love the uh, the Hindus say, and the beatniks also, <laughs> foraging together for sustenance. Can I at least call you dear? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so cheesy. That's so great. Uh, the extruded plastic dingus. <laughs> I wrote down so many comments. I know, it's so much fun. Oh, God. Sure, sure. 30 days, four weeks, a month at most. Not counting the mezzanine. Not counting the mezzanine. Merge, Kim asked that uh, at her funeral, uh, we refer to it as merging with the infinite. <laughs> I am a college graduate. Up on your feet. We don't crawl here at Hudsucker. <laughs> That's some strong stitch, you betcha. Oh, the uh, the cabbies talking as as Jennifer Jason Lee comes in to to Tim Robbins. Enter the dame. <laughs> oh, that's oh that scene is so great. Maybe he's wise. He don't oh. look wise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that scene is just is just too good. The ethos of my tender years. Probably one of these fast talking career gals. A numbskull thinks he knows things about things he knows nothing about. <laughs> yeah, that's, that one's so good they repeat it. Yeah. You reinvented the wheel. Getting off this merry-go-round. Paul Newman's most ominous line is, uh, The music plays, the wheel turns, and our spin ain't over yet. <laughs> uh, a thingamajig that would bring the everyone together, even if it kept them apart, spatially. Spatially. <laughs> spatially speaking. <laughs> Soft on the dummy from Dubuque. 